Our text for this Lord's Day is the first eight verses of Psalm 119. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of Yahweh. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word, and we ask you to lead us into truth by your spirit today. I pray that you would deliver us from all error, deliver us from everything that is not helpful, deliver us from every distraction. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. In the United States, the standard railroad gauge, the distance between the two rails, is four feet, eight and a half inches. Why not five feet? Why not four feet? That's an oddly specific number. Why was that gauge used? Well, because that's the way they built them in England, and the railroads in the United States followed the English specifications. Well, why did the English build them at four feet, eight and a half inches? Because the first rail lines were built by the same people who built the first streetcars, and that's the gauge they used for uh, streetcars in the cities. Well, well, why did they use that gauge then? Well, because the people who built the streetcars used the same equipment and tools that they had used for building wagons, which used that specific wheel spacing. And so because they already had the equipment they already set up to build that size axle and that spacing of wheels, they built the streetcars off of their wagon model. Well, why did the wagons have that particular odd wheel spacing? Well, if they tried to use any other spacing in England, the wagon wheels would break on some of those old long-distance roads in England because that's the spacing of the wheel ruts in, in England. Who built those old rutted roads? Well, the Romans built the first rutted roads throughout Europe and, and in England as well. They built them for their legions. And those roads have been used ever since the Romans. The Romans mapped out the routes, the long distance roads, and they're still in use today. And their ruts in the roads were formed by Roman war chariots, which everyone else had to match for fear of destroying their wagon wheels. You have to, you have, to have your wheels spaced the same as the Roman chariots because they dug the ruts on these roads. And Roman chariots all had the same uniform wheel spacing based on the standard width of two Roman war horses. Therefore, the United States standard railroad gauge of four feet, 8.5 inches, is derived from the original specifications for the imperial war chariot, or about the width of two Roman war horses. Now, hold on to that. When you see a space shuttle sitting on the launch pad, you see two big booster rockets attached to the sides of the main fuel tank. These are solid rocket boosters, and they're manufactured in Utah. Now, the engineers who designed the solid rocket boosters would have preferred to make them a bit larger, but the solid rocket boosters had to be shipped by train from the factory to the launch site. 
And the railroad line from the factory happens to run through various tunnels in the mountains, and the SRBs, the solid rocket boosters, have to fit through those tunnels. The tunnels are slightly larger than the uh, railroad track, slightly wider than the railroad track, and the railroad track, as you already know, is just about as wide as two standard Roman warhorses. So, a major space shuttle design feature of what is arguably the most advanced vehicle in human history was determined over 2,000 years ago by the width of a Roman chariot, or about the width of two uh, Roman war horses. The point is, for better or for worse, we are in so many ways living in the shadow of the ancient world. We cannot escape the ancient world. The entertainment that we watch has its roots in the theater of Rome and Greece. Our modern literature owes a debt to Homer and the other ancient bards and the storytellers. We're just retelling the same seven stories over and over. Our sports go back to the first Olympics. Our concepts of democracy and representative Republican government go back to the Greeks and the Romans. The ancient world has had an undeniable, indelible impact upon our modern world. We cannot escape the works and wonders and thought of the classical world. And yet, how many times have you heard someone complain about the Bible, why should I pay attention to a 2,000-year-old book? Why should I obey a 2,000-year-old book? Why should I believe a 2,000-year-old book? A position that's both arrogant and ignorant given that everything in our world is shaped by influences that are thousands of, year old, uh, thousands of years old, when our, when our present day is inescapably the product of the weight of thousands of years of human history. Why wouldn't you let an ancient book influence you? Show me a modern book that is completely divorced from any ancient influence. Name one, show me anything, and I'll prove you wrong. Everything that we have has been influenced by the ancient world. So, so why not read and understand and study the book that has been read, studied, and quoted more than any other book in our civilization. If you try to ignore the Bible completely, you are deliberately putting yourself into a minuscule minority. These protests against the Bible and its usefulness and these protests against the authority of the Bible, they're not coming out of an academic studied rejection of the scriptures. This comes from a place of pride and an extreme overconfidence in one's own understanding. At bottom, what, what is really under all of this is they don't like what the Bible teaches. And they don't like the people who read the Bible, and they don't like the people who study the Bible and seek to do what it says. And they really don't like the God of the Bible. They don't like the Jesus of the Bible, so they reject entirely the possibility that the God who created the universe, the God who created us, would also reveal himself to us in such a way that he has spoken to us and has acted in history to deliver us over and over and over. And that throughout history, the men who believed those things were, were, and, and saw them, they believed they were so important 
that they were moved to write them down and preserve them for thousands of years. And we who have received these words receive them as the very word of God. And we believe that this book is the basis of all understanding. It's the basis of all reality. Because God speaks through the words of this book, this book has the authority to tell us how to live. We trust it. We believe that it will not lead us into error. It will not lead us into failure. And it will lead us into eternal life. And we actually love that it's a 2,000-year-old book. We're proud of that. We're happy about that. We're not embarrassed. Uh, in fact, the most recent part is 2,000 years old. Uh, there are parts of it that are much, much, much older. Um, uh, it, it's at least 2,000 years old, and we're okay with that. In fact, we love that. We love that this was not all put together yesterday. So in our appreciation for the scriptures, our voices gladly join with the psalmist in Psalm 119, which is entirely about God's commandments. It's entirely, the whole psalm is about God's precepts, his word. And so he, he begins the psalm saying, those who walk in God's law are blessed. They are happy. They are at rest. Uh, they, their, their steps are ordered. And then he says in verse six, so I'm not ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I'm not ashamed when I study God's word. There's no part of the Bible that embarrasses me. There's no part that I wish wasn't there. There's no part that I, I'm trying to argue my way around or argue my way out of. We're not ashamed. We say, yes, this is what God has said, and we trust this revelation of his word, and we trust the Jesus that is displayed in this world. word, we, we trust him just as he is. We aren't gonna take anything away or add anything to it. He says in verse seven, I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn of your righteous judgments. We receive this book with gratitude. We receive God's word as a definition of righteousness for us. Uh, we, uh, God's word defines Justice and judgment, and, and, and that doesn't change with the shifting sands of time. In verse 8, he says, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. When we read it, we give thanks for it, and we uh, endeavor to obey it, to hear it, and to follow up with obedience and trust, to do everything that God says, to read it and to reread it, because we don't want to miss anything. We want to look for everything that pleases God so that we can submit to him and do what pleases him unashamedly, unapologetically. So do you really believe that this book is the word of God? Absolutely, unapologetically. Do you really believe that? Yes, with every fiber of my being. I stake my eternity, I stake everything in my life on the fact that this book, this collection of 66 books, is the revelation of the will of God, that it is authoritative, that it is infallible, that it is sufficient for everything that I will face in life. We've just begun a new series on Sunday mornings where we plan to uh, go all the way up to Easter asking several questions about what do we believe? And last week, Pastor Jones preached what we believe about God. Today, I want to explore what do we believe about the Bible. In these sermons, we can't say everything that needs to be said. In fact, every one of these could take, you know, 16 weeks on its own. Um, but um, 
we can barely scratch the surface of what needs to be said, but our hope is to, get, is to go on record and state clearly where we are on basic fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, doctrines which we believe are most accurately and clearly represented in, the, uh, in Reformed theology, in the, in the Protestant Reformation uh, and the tradition of the Reformers. Um, the theological heritage of the Protestant Reformation is what we believe the clearest expression of these core uh, uh, Christian doctrines. And now you might be thinking, well, you're going to talk about um, why, uh, wh what we believe about the Bible, and you're going to make an argument for the Bible's authority and its sufficiency. I know what you're up to, you're thinking. You're about to make an argument about the authority of the Bible by referencing the Bible itself. And that's circular reasoning, you may be thinking. And to that I reply, I absolutely am going to use the Bible to argue for the authority of the Bible. You got me. Uh, you, you, you know where I'm going. Because, and I do this unashamedly, because the Bible is self-authenticating. The Bible is self-evidencing. The Bible is self-attesting. The Bible is self-validating. And um, every worldview and every system of thought ultimately ends in a point of of a, a circle. We won't spend a lot of time on that, but can, can you prove the scientific method using the scientific method? Um, if you do, that's, that's circular, right? Um, but the Bible is, is uh, self-authenticating. It, it is possible to prove the Bible by the Bible, and I'm not just making that up. That's the position of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'm gonna read you a section of the Westminster Confession on the scriptures and um, you know, as in this era of, of Christian writing and thought, they like to pile up adjectives and you can easily get lost. Where am I now? In, in reading. So I'm gonna read this slowly and then I'm gonna unpack it. Um, but but here's, here's what the confession says about the authority of scripture and its self-attestation to its authority from the Westminster Confession. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture. Well, why? Why must we have a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture? Now, here is, here is why we trust the Scripture. Because of the heaven, heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. To restate that, the Bible's majesty, its perfections, its fulfilled prophecy, its infallible helpfulness in living, its internal agreement, its scope, its revelation of the way of salvation is its own evidence that it is the word of God. And if it is the word of God, it would have to be self-authenticating because if it needed anyone else to validate it, then that which validated it would be the higher authority. Let me quote Westminster one more time. The authority of Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, 
the author thereof. And therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Uh, the Bible is its, its own evidence for its authority and usefulness and inspiration. So, wait, let me just follow you now, you're saying. Are, are you saying, and is the confession saying, Westminster Confession saying, that you believe the word of God is the word of God, you believe the Bible is the word of God because it says it's the word of God? Uh, yes, I think that's what I said. Um, yeah, in short, yes, that's the short answer. The long answer is there are innumerable internal evidences and consistencies and glories in this book which support that belief. But the short answer is yes, it is self-authenticating. I had to fly on an airplane this last week, which most of you know is my favorite thing to do. I love, I love everything about air travel, um, but I was speaking at a conference and they insisted on flying me and I, I said, okay. And um, when you fly on an airplane, and you, uh, in order to get to your gate, you have to have a state-issued ID and you have to have a valid boarding pass. And so just to get through security, you have to hand over your, your driver's license and they take it. How do they know that the card that I gave them is an official North Carolina state driver's license? How do they know that? Well, because it says it right on it. It says that it's an official driver's license. How do they know that it's mine? Well, it's got my picture on it. It's got my name on it. It's got my personal data on it. Could, be, could it be a counterfeit? Maybe, but they check it. It's got security features. It has a hologram. It has a, har a barcode on the back. They can hold it under a light, and they can see that it is Authentic, your license confirms itself that it is issued by the authority of the state. The issuer has built in authentication into that document. Now, um, on the boarding pass, you, you can make a fake boarding pass at home on your computer and you can print it off, but you take it up to the airport and it's not gonna match the flight manifest. They'll try to beep it, you know, they, they beep it, it goes beep, but it's not gonna go beep, it's gonna go bang. And they're gonna try it again. It's gonna go, eh, and they're gonna give it back to you, and somebody with a badge and a gun might show up to see what you're up to. If you have a real boarding pass, it is going to match up with the uh, data in the computer, and they will let you go, like the confession says. And I, I know that um, all, all illustrations have uh, weak points, but, but I'm, I'm trying to show how we're used to things which authenticate themselves all the time, and the confession says that the inward work of the Holy Spirit bears witness by and with the word in our hearts. The written word, uh, the written word matches up with the Holy Spirit and his work in us to confirm the word of God. The Spirit's work in us doesn't put us in a position of authority over the Bible to judge its reliability. We don't validate it, but we are in a position by God's Holy Spirit to accept it, to receive it, and to, uh, uh, in a position of submission to confirm its authority. Now, also, if I have a counterfeit license and I'm gonna try to sneak through security, I don't want too much scrutiny. I don't want the guy to look at my fake document for too long. I don't want him to put it under the UV light. I hope he's distracted. Uh, I, I hope he doesn't scan it. I wanna avoid all that. Uh, I'm nervous if I've got counterfeit documents that I'm trying to smuggle through. But if I have a real license, I'm not worried. If I have a real, I don't look at it all you want. Uh, uh, shine a light through it. Uh, do whatever you wanna do. It's the real deal. And the Bible, because it is a genuine article, it doesn't avoid inspection, investigation, or validation. In fact, the Bible opens itself up 
to uh, testing because it is self-attesting. It is self-authenticating. So all over the scriptures say, come, check this out, see, confirm. 1 John 4, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. How many warnings about false prophets are there in the Bible about um, if, if anyone else brings another gospel to you, let him be let him be accursed. In Acts 17, we read about Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. When Paul comes to a synagogue and he starts to teach them, he says, I'm gonna tell you what Jesus did, but I want you to confirm that the Jesus I'm telling you about matches the Messiah that the Old Testament prophets told you was coming. And for three Sabbaths, he reasons with them because this is not a counterfeit. It's not a joke. It's not a myth. This is all very consistent. This holds together. And we can be confident because it is God's holy word. In 1 John 5, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So sure and so authoritative is the word of God, that these are not some things that you kind of, well, I kind of think, I mean, on a good day, I, I hope that these things are true. No, I know them, and I continue to trust, and I continue to believe. Acts 1-3, uh, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus comes in his resurrected body and he proves and he proves and he proves and he shows up and he shows himself to be the resurrected Lord. And the gospel writers and the writers of uh, Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Luke and the other writers of the New Testament say uh, he proved it. He showed himself to many eyewitnesses. The Bible is a book that contains the accounts of eyewitnesses. Second Peter 1, Peter says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In the book of Luke, I'm, I'm sorry, the book of Acts alone, in the book of Acts, Luke references more than 100 people. I counted 107, and I went through it, and I, I don't think I missed anybody. About 100 people, 107 people, Luke mentions, Paul greets 28 people, at the end of Romans. Paul greets 34 people by name in uh, the books of Timothy and Titus. And Paul says that Jesus uh, showed himself in his resurrected body to over 500 people in, in 1 Corinthians 15. So what, is, what am I saying? What is the point of this eyewitness testimony? It's because as these books were being written and distributed throughout the world, uh, these are all people that you could go up to, you could talk to, you could write them a letter and ask, did these things happen the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John said that they happened? Is this accurate? Is this true? You don't put people's names in a historical account if you're trying to cover up something. But these are all eyewitnesses who could be consulted. Did that really happen? And they could all say, yes, absolutely. It really did happen. They could tell the people around them that, yes, this really happened. And in and, addition to that, the Bible contains history, and geography, and it's all true. In some cases, the Bible tells history before it happens, and it happens just the way that the Bible says it's gonna happen. 
So it's not a fairy tale, it's not a fantasy book, it's not a collection of allegories. Archaeology is always supporting the Bible. Ancient historical records confirm the rulers and the kingdoms of the Bible. Uh, I didn't have time to study up on this too much. I saw just an article, there was a, uh, just a couple days ago, there was another discovery of a Moabite document referencing their dealings with King David. A couple of centuries ago, liberal scholars would have said, well, I'm not really even sure that David existed. And now we have records that David was, in fact, the king of, of Israel from other sources. Uh, the the, the archaeology and, and historical records are always confirming the Bible. You see, one popular dismissal of the Bible is that it's this product of a giant game of telephone, that somebody made something up and then somebody else embellished it and somebody else thought, well, that doesn't sound right, and changed it over here, and then somebody else uh, played with it a little bit more until we get what we got. It's this, uh, the, the Bible's this product of this muddy, confusing oral history that was messed up over the years, full of myths that got blown out of proportion and later was embellished by medieval monks. But that's, uh, it takes about 10 minutes of study to figure out that that's impossible. That, that's absolutely impossible. The, the Bible has more manuscript support. The Bible has more manuscript integrity than any other ancient book. And by that, I mean we have very, very, very early handwritten copies of the text of the Bible, and, and we have more of those than we have of any other ancient book. We don't have originals. We don't have originals because papyrus deteriorates over time, but we do have fragments that go back to the second century. Um, books were copied by hand, and, and so we can, we can match what we have today with, with an abundance of these handwritten ancient copies. And again, there are more ancient manuscripts existing for the Bible than for any other ancient book, and these manuscripts are closer to the events of the Bible than any other ancient book. So the earliest manuscripts that we have of uh, first century historians, other men who are writing at the same time as Paul and Luke and Matthew and Mark and John. Um, other men such as J Josephus, Herodotus, I know that gave uh, some middle schoolers some uh, PTSD just now by mentioning Herodotus. Some of you will <laughs> um, It's okay, it'll be okay, we'll be all right. Um, Suetonius, these are, these are men who wrote in the first century the earliest copies that we have of these books are dated to the 9th and 11th centuries. They wrote in the first century, but the earliest, the oldest copies we have go back to the 9th and 11th centuries, more than 800 years after the originals were written. And in, in, the term, in terms of the number of surviving manuscripts, there, we've got 200 for Suetonius. We have 133 for Josephus. We have 75 for Herodotus. That means we can compare them. We can make sure that they're all in agreement. So that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. Do you know how many we have for the works of Plato? We have seven. We have seven manuscripts existing from the works of Plato. We have uh, the works of Julius Caesar, 14. Do you believe that Julius Caesar wrote that? Sure, yeah, we've got all this. We've got 14 copies of this. This is a big deal, 14. Do you know how many we have for Homer? A thousand. We have a thousand copies of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, a thousand ancient manuscripts of Homer. Uh, it is well documented. We know what Homer, we know what Homer wrote. A thousand. Now that's impressive. Do you know how many we have? Handwritten ancient Greek manuscripts for the books of the New Testament? We have 6,000. 
more than any other ancient text, and the earliest ones are dated to within 100 years of the original. Well, you say 6,000, and they're all hand-copied. There must be wide inconsistencies and variations. No, we have 6,000 manuscripts that are 95% in agreement. There are uh, textual families that share some differences. There are some who have the longer ending of Mark, and there are some that, that don't have that longer uh, ending of Mark. There, there are variations in 5% of the text, none of which have anything to do with the vitals of the Christian religion. It's not like there's a copy of Matthew floating around out there that says, well, Jesus really wasn't born of a virgin. Or, yeah, Jesus, uh, there was no bodily resurrection. That's not, that's not the, um, it's, it's um, words and uh, things, uh, small details for the majority of these um, that uh, are, are minuscule. Um, don't let anyone get away with the argument that the Bible is just a big game of telephone, as if it were oral histories and stuff that was made up by the Roman church in the Middle Ages. We have, we have manuscripts that far, far, far predate uh, the Middle Ages. And on top of that, the Bible, as, as a work, as a whole, it does not gloss over the weaknesses of its central figures. And this is something when the ancients are writing myths, they kind of pump up certain guys and they uh, make other ones look awful. They, they're writing in such a way that, that you um, like who they like and you hate who they hate. Um, we trust uh, uh, the Bible. Uh, the Bible is not a book of false hero worship. Peter's sins are in black and white. The contentiousness of James and John are right there. Paul confesses his sins. Only Jesus is perfect, and he's unlike any other human any other man to exist ever in the history of the world. Moreover, the Gospels contain the testimony of women. If you wanted to prove something and get some credibility in the ancient world, if you were making things up, you would not include the testimony of, of women, but they do. All of these, everything so far, these are all academic reasons. None of them really get to the heart of why we believe that the Bible is authoritative and God's holy word. Um, when it comes down to it, we trust that the Bible is God's word because it is in the Bible, it is in the pages of this book that we meet Jesus, that we hear the gospel, we hear the life of Jesus, and in his story, he wins our trust, he wins our admiration, he wins our allegiance. Um, and this is something of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And, and Paul says, this is the foundation. This is the basis. This is the world, the, the story in which we stand. All of our hope and everything rests in these things being true. The, the gospel is the story of Christ's life for us, his death for us, his resurrection for us, his ascension for us, and, and what all of this achieved for us and how all that Jesus is can be enjoyed for all of eternity. The same Jesus, the one we meet in the Gospels, <clears throat> is the only one who has an answer for our biggest problems. You've heard me say this many times. I'm not going to get tired of saying it. We've got two 
unsolvable problems apart from Jesus. We've got two enormous needs. We are guilty and we are going to die. Those are two things we cannot fix on our own. There is no way that we can cleanse ourselves. There is no way that we can find eternal life on our own. But the Bible has the words of Jesus, which give us answers for our two greatest needs. His death provides a way for our sins to be forgiven. His rising again gives us hope of eternal life. His obedience before the Father is substitutionary. It's for us, and we are in him and that is our salvation, and that is our life. Every other world system, every other religion and philosophy has this formula of obedience and ritual, which is exhausting and which never gets us anywhere, doesn't cleanse us, and doesn't promise us eternal life. Only Jesus can answer these two deepest needs. And additionally, Paul, we get, to, we get to see Jesus and we get to believe Jesus through Paul's witness. Paul's witness to Jesus builds my confidence. The Apostle Paul is a contemporary witness to Jesus who more than any other uh, New Testament author, he lets us see into his own soul and he lets us see into his own ministry. Paul's witness to Jesus wins our trust. Paul, when he writes, he's not a ranting lunatic or a liar. His story rings true. It coheres with the self-authenticating Christ that we meet in the gospel. Paul believes that the words that he's writing were taught by the Spirit. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's, who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to spiritual people. But a natural man does not accept the things of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Where are you getting all this, Paul? Where is this coming from? Paul says, I learned this from the Spirit. I'm speaking to you spiritual things that the Spirit gave to me. Well, uh, that's awfully convenient, isn't it, Paul, that the things you're saying you say you got from the Spirit, why should we believe you? Well, Peter comes along and Peter says, no, 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 you need to listen to Paul. You need to listen to him because his writings are scriptures just like the rest of the Old Testament, just like the rest of the Bible. Peter says, um, he says, regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter pulls in Paul's letters and he says, yeah, we, uh, unstable men treat them just like they do the rest of the Bible. They treat them just like they do the rest of the scriptures. And Peter affirms the value and the authority of Paul's writings. Because we trust in Jesus, we trust about we, we trust what he says about the rest of the scriptures. And, and Jesus believed in the in the uh, inspiration of the Old Testament. Jesus believed that the psalmist spoke by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus in Mark, he says, uh, he taught in the temple. He says, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes the psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Um, so, so Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, and he says, David said this, in the Spirit. David said this under the authority and with the permission of the Spirit. And so when Jesus quotes the Psalms, Jesus is quoting the Holy Spirit. 
Um, Jesus will do this in other places. He'll quote the Old Testament and he'll say, my father said, and he's quoting Moses or he's quoting an Old Testament, an Old Testament prophet. Jesus trusted and believed the scriptures as the word of his father. He believed that the scripture would be fulfilled. He says, I say unto you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the law shall pass away until all is accomplished. Jesus uh, taught that Moses' writings are to be believed. He said, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? John 5. 46. Jesus says it's all a package. You can't say, well, I like some things Jesus has to say, but really I can't get on board with creation and the historical Adam and the flood and the plagues of, uh, on Egypt. I, I, I just can't really grapple with all that. But I, but I like, Jesus said some nice things. Jesus says, okay, Jesus says, if you don't believe Moses, you don't believe me. If you don't believe me, you don't believe Moses. And if you believe Moses, then you must believe me because he wrote about me. It's all a package. These are just a handful of the evidences of, uh, of the, the, the authority of the Bible and the, um, and, and the reliability of, of the Bible. Um, well, we don't even have time to go into the unity of thought, the unity of the presentation and the message, how many authors over many centuries all say the same thing, or how there are 324 some odd individual prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life. So, so I've spent the majority of time now on the authenticity of Scripture, and, and just in these last couple of minutes, I want to talk about just a few other terms that we use to describe the Bible. We say the Bible is inspired. That is to say, the 66 books of the Holy Bible are God-breathed. The contents of the Bible are not the products of human imagination. That The words of the Bible are the very communication of the God of creation spoken by his Holy Spirit through the writing of men upon whom he moved. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21. The word inspired means literally breathed in. And so just as that life-giving breath of God filled Adam's lungs, so that same spirit of God breathes in and through Holy Scripture, filling the Bible with his words, his wisdom, his law, his promises, with accounts of his mighty acts. Thus, the source of the Bible is the Holy Spirit. We also speak about the doctrine of the infallibility of Scripture. That infallibility defines our belief that the text of the Bible can be trusted. We trust that the Bible will never lead us into error. The Bible doesn't tell us anything that is not true. We trust that the original Greek and Hebrew autographs, the original writing of the inspired authors was entirely without error, and God has preserved his holy word through the centuries for us. So because the Bible is authentic, because it is inspired, because it is infallible, it is therefore authoritative. As the perfect spirit-breathed word of God, we receive the books of the Bible, as the Belgic Confession says, for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith, believing without any doubt all things contained in them. So it is our duty to diligently apply ourselves to understanding and obeying God's word. We don't place ourselves over the Bible as its critics. We don't decide which parts to believe and which not to believe. We submit ourselves to the scriptures as students, listening to the very voice of God, 
receiving from it instruction in life and salvation. One last word that we use to describe the Bible is that it is sufficient. The Bible contains the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his glory, for man's salvation, for faith and life. The scriptures are our access to godly wisdom. The scriptures are our comfort through pain and affliction. The scriptures instruct us in the pursuit of righteousness, patience through temptation and in the avoidance of sin. Through the scriptures, we learn how to gain salvation, how uh, to gain joy and life and blessing through Christ. The Bible contains all that we need to know about God's will and a life that is pleasing to him. Or as Peter writes, God's word has given us, uh, God has given us his eternal word, Jesus, and by his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The Bible is the primary resource for all instruction in righteousness. Therefore, we can not only trust that the Bible has all the answers for the challenges of our lives, but we may also confidently direct other people to the scriptures as well and trust for them that it contains all the answers necessary for them to pursue right and faithful living before God. The Bible is our starting point for every pursuit in wisdom and understanding. And all of our studies, not just ethical studies, not just moral studies, but, but scientific and technological and economic and political pursuits for all of life, the Bible is our lens through which we understand the world that God made. It's how we understand human behavior and human culture. Don't ever accept any substitute, not philosophy, not the Greeks, no matter how much of an impact they've made upon our world, not natural law, not even the confessions and the creeds, which are wonderful summaries of the Bible, but not a substitute. Know God's word, hear it, and obey it. How much suffering and confusion is the result of biblical illiteracy? How much disorder is there because we just don't know what God has said? God has spoken and his word is recorded. It is accessible to you. Some of you have it on your lap. Some of you have it in the back seat of your car or on your shelf or on your night table or on your coffee table. It's accessible to you. How can you not take a deep dive and know it inside and out? So do you submit your life to a 2,000-year-old book? Absolutely. You better believe it, 100%, without apology. I'm not ashamed of that. I do. Let us be grateful for this thousands of year old book, this revelation of the mind of God, which is infinite. Our study keeps going and going. It never gets old and it's always refreshing. Take hold of it and, and be encouraged to know it inside and out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would strengthen us by its continual study and use and application, that we would hear it and obey it. Father, uh, uh, defend your word in all the world against those who would deny its importance or its relevance, and strengthen us by your spirit who inspired these words to be confident in following it to please you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.